Welcome to a Friday night edition of Tiski Sour. Rishi Sunak is threatening to clamp down on strikers all while giving bungs to bankers. What is going on? Could we possibly have foreseen this when the ex-banker became prime minister? I'm joined by Ash Sarkar. How are you doing, Ash? I'm very sad, Michael, because Brazil are out of the World Cup. And I know, I know most of the team are Bolsonaro supporters and Neymar is a tax dodger, blah, 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 blah. But Richarlison supports Lula. And most importantly, he is a precious baby angel who must be protected at all costs. And now he's sad. So I'm sad. But he didn't miss a penalty, so we're all fine politically. You get that little pang when you, I only watch the penalties, but you get that little pang when you're like, yes, the underdog has won. And then you realize, oh, actually, Brazil versus Argentina would have been more interesting than Croatia versus Argentina. But there we are. That is the nature of the beautiful game, which, you know, I am so passionate about. We want to know your thoughts, your questions throughout the show. Tweet them on the hashtag TiskySour. We're talking about strikes again. So do let us know again if you are soon to be on strike or if you are a member of the CWU, which means you're on strike today. And we are also, I haven't mentioned yet, talking about Harry and Meghan. So have you taken sides in this row? They've got a massive Netflix show out. Right-wingers are going crazy. I only managed to watch 20 minutes of the show, I have to say. I know that Ash has done the good work of doing the research properly, and she's watched it all. So we are going to have a a very well-researched discussion about the Harry and Meghan documentary. Today, 100,000 workers for the Royal Mail are on strike over pay and conditions. My colleagues, Polly Smythe and Jack Barraclough, went to the rally organized by the CWU, who represent the Royal Mail workers. A Royal Mail worker gave his opinions on the reasons for the strike. Don't insult us with a 3.5% pay rise, because I tell you what, whilst the pandemic was ongoing, we were out there on the streets delivering, handling parcels, packets, letters from all over the world, we were part of the, uh, the key workers that kept this country afloat. But it's more than that. It's absolutely more than that. That pay rise means nothing to us because what in real terms is happening is that the terms and conditions that they're taking away from us gives us a 20% less in our pay. So it's not about the pay rise, it's about the terms and conditions. And what I'd like to add as well is that this union has never been backward in coming forward in moving uh, and developing with the times and moving forward. If you remember, we used to have two deliveries. We used to go around, just walk the streets. We develop and we embrace because at the end of the day, we provide a great service to this country, delivering to 30 million people six days a week. And that's what we want to continue. We don't want city spivs coming in asset stripping our company, taking all everything away and reducing the service into nothing because you only have to look at privatised industries throughout the UK and what has happened. We're fighting to defend that service. 500 years we've been going, possibly one of the biggest and best industries in this country. And we provide that service to the United Kingdom and we love it. I'll give you an example of what the post, if, post office means to the community. I was out of my delivery the other day, right, and there was a little old lady, bless her heart, hair's thinning, got loads of whiskers on her chin, loads of wrinkles hobbling along. And do you know what she said to me? Have you got any mail for me? I went, I'm sorry, darling, no, I haven't. She said, I haven't had any letters for a long time. I spoke to a few of the lads back at the office, and do you know what we've done? We all sent her a Christmas card. 
we sent her a Christmas card, this little old lady, because their only contact with the community, with the outside world, is with their postie. That was a really powerful interview, I think. You're hearing lots, I think, striking workers at the moment saying, actually, we like our jobs. We just want to be able to do our jobs properly. And you saw there the debate is often about how do we cut back on staff? You know, we can't possibly afford to employ people like we used to employ people. And then they're making the argument, no, look, it's actually really important to have real people going from door to door every single morning. Similar argument made in the RMT. They're often arguing, debating why we should have people working on trains. You've got the, the, the modernizers saying, no, we've got to get rid of them. And they're saying, no, no, it's actually good for society in general to have people working on these trains. Talking of the RMT, my colleagues, Jack and Polly, spoke to Mick Lynch and asked him what's at stake for the postal workers. Job security, of course, they want to replace posties with uh, uh, casualized gig economy workers. The terms and conditions which are absolutely vital to workers such as these work shifts, just like railway workers, they want to rip their terms and conditions up. They want to get rid of everything that they fought for over the decades, even the centuries. And of course, they've got a pathetic pay offer, which is way undercooked and way a puny pay offer compared to the cost of living crisis, which for working people is greater than it is for others. So they're exactly the same on the three, three main things, jobs, conditions and pay. We're completely aligned and we're completely aligned in the fact that we're facing a load of devils, basically, who want to do us in and end organised labour in Britain and put us all on the scrap heap of the gig economy. So I'm here to give my support. He does have a way with words. That was Mick Lynch of the RMT supporting the CWU at their rally today. On the RMT strikes this week, Mick Lynch told Sky News exactly who he blames for keeping the dispute going. Are you saying that this government is purposefully scuppering any chance of a deal? Absolutely. That's exactly what I'm saying. They have torpedoed the negotiations and they have told the companies to take on the strikes because of what you heard in the comments yesterday from Richie Sunak acting tough. He's given in to his backbenchers on all sorts of things uh, about planning permissions and other issues. So he's going to try and make the RMT and the other trade unions as bogeymen uh, and all the rest of it. And they want this strike action to go ahead when there are solutions and possible solutions that railway management, railway executives could put to us to try and get a resolution. And they are stopping that from happening. And we talked a number of times on this show about the specifics of the RMT and CWU strikes. Now, though, I want to make a more general point about the value of strikes and trade unions. And that's this. They make society more equal. This graphic is from the New Statesman, and it shows the union density of various countries compared to how unequal they are. Now, union density means the percent of workers who are unionized. It's incredibly high in Iceland at 92%, next to the Nordic countries, where it's between 50 and 67%. And then at the bottom, you've got the UK on 23% and the US on 10%. Now, look over to the equality score. Now, this is the Gini coefficient. So if it's lower, then the country is more equal. And lo and behold, all those countries with high union density have low levels of inequality, and all those countries with low union density are incredibly unequal. Now, you'll also probably be aware that the UK has gotten a lot more unequal over the past 40 years. This is how our Gini coefficient has changed since the 1970s. So the UK's Gini coefficient was below 26 in 1977. It rocketed to 34 during the 1980s and hit a peak of 38 
under new Labour. It's back at around 34 now. Now we, though, can look at how strikes have developed over that period. So you can see here, we used to have a lot of strikes in Britain, especially in the 1970s. They then declined in the 1980s and have been at historic lows since the 1990s. This year, they're at higher levels than they've been in 30 years, but are still incredibly low compared to the post-war periods. Union density and strikes are very much correlated with equal societies. Ash, I want to go to you for this. First principles, why? Why might we see that association? Why do more strikes, more trade unions lead to greater levels of equality? So let's go back to the old boy Karl Marx. Basically, he says that the basis of all social transformation in society is class conflict, the conflicts between workers and people who own the means of production, the bosses, the capitalist classes, the elites. And when you think about what kinds of power that workers have, really, it all boils down to we can withdraw our labor, right? We can go on strike. It means that your profit generating activities cease and you're, you're forced to make some kind of concession. So that's why you see this relationship between higher rates of union density, higher numbers of, of strike days taken and higher levels of equality in a society because that form of collective bargaining, that willingness to organize as workers collectively and withdraw your labor collectively is what forces capital to the table and balances wealth in a way that simple you know, negotiation, begging, pleading, cultural shifts won't do it. And I think that an awful lot of work is is put in to obscure this really simple fact because you've got all of these, you know, how to succeed in the workplace books, whether it's, you know, the kind of feminist tinge, like vapidity of lean in or whether it's, you know, those books of like, you know, 49 secrets of successful people. And it's usually always show up early, participate, be nice, ask for a pay rise as an individual and not as a collective. And these are things which are highly, highly limited in their effectiveness. At best, they might be successful for you as an individual. And at worst, really, what they do is that they undermine the efforts of everybody to have a workplace settlement, which is fair for more people, you know, a rising tide that can lift all boats. And I think that's also why strike action, when it's reported in the media, is is almost demonized well not almost demonized very often demonized it's seen as an attack on ordinary people when it's when it's not it's ordinary people leveraging the one form of power that they have which is the withdrawal of their labor i mean i think looking at why the aggregate data is super relevant as well because you'll often hear people say oh fair enough yeah workers going on strike that does increase their wages but that's going to come out of other people's pockets and essentially what you end up having is this privileged unionized group of people and then everyone else one has to sort of suffer worse train services or worse ambulance services, and then two has to suffer the inflation that these mean, selfish, trade unionized workers have sort of imposed upon the rest of us. And I think looking at the aggregate data just shows how wrong that is, because trade unions don't increase inequality by you've got this group of privileged workers who get their higher wages and screw everyone else. No, the more trade unions you have, the more equality we all have. When these people are going on strike, it is, it's not necessarily to benefit us, it's to benefit them, good for them, but it does benefit us all. 
So, I mean, that is why we at Navarro are always wholeheartedly behind all striking workers, because it's, it's just an empirical fact that the, the more people you have in trade unions, the more militant your trade unions are, then the greater degrees of equality you're going to have in your society, which, I mean, is kind of what gets me up in the morning, right? So, so obviously, this is why we talk about strikes so much. And this is why we're always so uncompromising in our support. Let's go to a couple of comments. Um, Les Watts with a tenor, thank you so much. Getting the support of the general public is helpful, but not essential to a successful strike. Um, interesting point. Yes, yeah, so there's sort of two, two, two angles um, to a strike, of course. One is to sort of impose a cost on your employer. You know, another could be to demonstrate to the public how useful your job is, how essential you are. What will often happen is the government tries to demonize strikers so that they can impose tougher laws, which essentially gives power back to the employer. If you sort of ban strikes, then obviously the, the employer ends up having more power. That is actually going to come up in our next section. So I will leave it there for now. We're moving on to Rishi Sunak. With energy bills on the rise, it's going to be a pretty grim Christmas for a lot of Britain. But there's one group who are about to have a bumper new year. Bankers. That's after Chancellor Jeremy Hunt announced a package of measures to loosen restrictions on how the city conducts its business. The changes amount to the biggest shakeup of financial regulation in 30 years. And the government says they'll make the city more competitive internationally. But many of the restrictions being dropped were brought in after the 2008 financial crash, and they were supposed to help prevent another one. So isn't this a dangerous move? That's a question Sky News put to the Chancellor. Is it reckless to be relaxing financial measures at the minute? Are you effectively sowing the seeds of the next financial crash? No, because uh, we have learnt the lessons of that crash. We've put in place some very important guardrails, which will remain. But uh, the banks have become much healthier financially since 2008. We put in place a process uh, so that financial issues can be resolved, which we didn't have before. But on that basis, we also want to make sure they can compete with other financial centres, whether it's the United States or Asia. And Scotland is in a fantastic place to do that. And that's why these reforms will make a big difference. The reforms are obviously for the city of London, but they've decided to go announce it in Edinburgh so that it doesn't seem like a London-centric thing. Anyway. Um, let's look at what's changing. So The Guardian has reported this. The package includes plans to repeal UK rules introduced in the wake of the 2007-08 financial crisis, including the senior manager's regime, which holds bosses personally and financially responsible for problems that occur on their watch, and the ring-fencing rules that are intended to protect everyday customers by separating their deposits from riskier investment banking operations. Also in Hunt's plan is a change to the financial regulators. At the moment, they're responsible for constraining what bankers can do. Under new rules, the regulators will also be charged with making sure that British banks are internationally competitive. So that could mean having regulators telling bankers to take more risks. A little odd. John Vickers was chief economist at the Bank of England. He said this to Radio 4's The World at One. The competitiveness of the UK economy as a whole matters enormously to us all. And in terms of financial services, vital for that whole economy competitiveness is safe and sound financial institutions, banks, insurance companies, and all the rest, and financial markets that work efficiently and with integrity. And the financial regulators' existing objectives are already aimed at precisely those things. So I see very little point in adding 
a new, albeit secondary, competitiveness objective, particularly one which in the draft, in the bill, is slanted towards the financial services sector. I do not think that that sector, important though it is for us all, should get special treatment in terms of the, the angling of that objective. The risk is that it would lead regulators to cut slack to this one sector, the financial services sector, and that that could rebound very negatively on the rest of us, on the economy as a whole. The competitiveness of the whole economy needs banks that are extremely well regulated. So I thought that was really interesting. And from, you know, it's from an establishment figure, he's not a lefty, former chief economist at the, the Bank of England. And essentially, you know, the government's argument, this is all about being competitive. And, you know, we're supposed to as a society want to be competitive because it means more people invest here. And what he's explaining is actually to have a competitive economy in general, what you need is a relatively stable financial sector. To look at Germany, for example, right? So they don't have the riskiest banks. They don't have the biggest financial sector. But that's actually quite good for the rest of their economy because it means that, you know, you don't just have a completely speculative asset fueled economy. What we did in this country before the financial crisis, you know, to our detriment, was we said, let's let's give all the power to the City of London, let's deregulate the City of London. That ended up actually deindustrializing most of the country. We ended up with a fundamentally very weak economy, but it was good for some people. It was good for some people in the City of London. And so making the City of London more competitive, which means bringing more money into the City of London, doesn't necessarily make the economy more competitive, but our government is still doing it anyway. That doesn't seem smart, doesn't seem like a very technocratic thing to do, but maybe it makes sense when you recognize that these people I have a lot of pals in the city. Rishi Sunak used to work in the city, right? So this is this is a favor, a bung to bankers. And it's not to make the economy more competitive. It's actually going to be at the expense of the rest of the economy, you know, quite possibly, quite early to say. But as you heard there, the chief former chief economist at the Bank of England thought that was perfectly plausible. And that seems to be where we are. Um, Ash, you wrote uh, the Cole Tardo on this issue this morning. A very interesting piece. What's your what's your take? Let's start with why Jeremy Hunt is doing this. I actually think the fact that Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak have friends in the city is maybe secondary. I think the reason why they're doing this is because deregulating the financial sector and allowing riskier forms of investment, quite frankly, is a cheap and nasty way of bolstering your end of year growth stats. And right now, that is the single-minded focus of this Conservative government. It is inflate GDP however you have to so that we can claim that we've come out of recession, you know, quicker than expected or, you know, it didn't drag on for as long as it could have. So I think that that's why they're doing this. It's it's, it's a way of going, okay, well, you deregulate the city, you've got riskier forms of financial transaction involving larger sums of money. Ultimately, that's not going to benefit the rest of the country, but it's not meant to. Um, it's it's meant to benefit the city and, and subsequently to that, the political careers of Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt. But when you look at the changes that they're bringing in, I do think that they're incredibly dangerous. They might not be dangerous in an immediate sense, you know, a, a period of, you know, two to five years, but long term, they really could be. So if you weaken the ring fencing, which protects everyday retail banking customers like me and you, it stops our deposits from being used in riskier investment banking. Well, that's financial risk, which is being borne by us, 
the bank benefits from being able to play around, gamble with our money, but we're exposed to the risk in a way which could, you know, ruin our lives, destroy our savings. The second thing that they're getting rid of is something which has been really unpopular in the city, but actually makes a lot of sense, which is the senior managers regime. What that means is that if you are at the top level of a bank and there is a massive fuck up on your watch, you lose an awful lot of money or it turns out there's some kind of malpractice, you've not been doing something right. It means that you as an individual are personally and financially liable for that error. So the idea is that you don't have a level of complacency the way that you did leading up to 2008. 2008, where you had bad debt being packaged up and sold off with good debt, which is why there was so much exposure to the subprime mortgage crisis. You didn't have individuals being held responsible in the same way. And so that's why that change was implemented. And it's quite funny. I was um, interviewing Oliver Bullough a couple of weeks ago, and you can find the video on Navarra Media. And one of the things that he said is that the attitude amongst bankers when it was really clear that a big crash was coming, 2007, 2008, was keep dancing, but stay close to the door. So the idea is is that they knew what was going on was hugely risky. They knew that there was going to be a big crash, that people were going to lose their money, that it was going to severely impact ordinary people's lives, their livelihoods, their jobs. But ultimately, if you could... Uh, extricate yourself as as close as possible uh, up to that catastrophic moment, then you've got, you know, all the profits and minimal risk. And and that is going to be the kind of behavior which is incentivized by these Edinburgh reforms. And the third thing is something which was mentioned, which is this idea that regulators are going to be effectively deputized to, you know, monitor firms for their competitiveness. So, The idea of a regulator coming and going, oh, you know, you're not being as competitive as you could be, or indeed turning a blind eye to reckless, dangerous, uh, you know, practices, because they're like, well, you know, it's keeping them competitive, is the exact opposite of what a regulator should do. So sure, Jeremy Hunt is saying, well, look, the banks are in a really different position now than they were in 2007, 2008. Part of the reason for that is because of these reforms which are introduced to stop something like that from happening ever again. So if you get rid of them, do you think that everyone's going to keep playing by the same rules of you know, caution and due diligence that you force them to adhere to? No, then they're, they're not going to elect to keep playing by those rules. So it's it's, it's hugely, I think, reckless, hugely dangerous. And the last thing that I want to say is that when it comes to Big Bang Era 1, which was the 1986 package of reforms that Margaret Thatcher introduced, there is a consensus in politics that they contributed to just how bad the financial crisis was for us here in the UK 2007 and 2008. When I say it's a consensus, I'm not just talking about, you know, from the far left to the centre left. I'm talking about former Tory Chancellor Nigel Lawson. I'm talking about former hedge fund managers saying that we didn't understand the risks that we were sleepwalking into. Gordon Brown as well. You know, these aren't, these aren't marginal left wing figures. They're not Navarra media contributors. And they look back on those reforms and go, that made things worse for us than it necessarily would have been had we kept some of those safeguards in place. Let's talk about someone with close connections to bankers looking to cash in big from city deregulation. It's Rishi Sunak. Now, I take Ash's point that his closeness to the city probably isn't the only reason 
these reforms are being made. But it does go without saying he made millions as a hedge fund manager before becoming an MP. And ironically, well, predictably, perhaps, while he's happy to make it easier for his mates to make as much money as they can, he had this to say about ordinary workers trying to improve their conditions. But what I'm not going to do is ask ordinary families up and down the country to pay an extra £1,000 a year to meet the pay demands of the union bosses. That wouldn't be right and it wouldn't be fair. It's right now that we also look to minimise the disruption on people's lives and that's why we're looking at tough new laws. Okay, you said you're looking at everything there. Well, what are we talking about? It was widely briefed to the press that you could be looking at emergency workers end up like the police being, banning, being banned from strike action. Yes or no, is that on the table? So I'm not going to get into the details now. We're looking at all options, but what I can say is my priority is to always be reasonable and that's what we're going to continue to do, but also to make sure that we can protect lives and minimise the disruption to people's lives. That's, that's my focus and that's what we'll work on doing. We're always going to be reasonable as he threatens tough trade union laws standing in front of fighter jets. It wasn't particularly subtle. Also, that idea that if, if um, workers don't get a pay cut this year, public sector workers don't get a pay cut this year, that's going to cost everyone in the country a thousand pounds. is so ridiculous. Like The point of tax, right, is that it's progressive. Rich people pay more of it than poor people. So if we give public sector workers a pay rise that's in line with inflation, it won't be that every household has to pay a thousand pounds. It'll be that the very rich have to pay many thousands of pounds. And yeah, we'll all probably have to pay a little bit more in tax, right? But that's sort of, you know, so many of us work in the public sector anyway, right? It'll end up having a sort of multiplier effect. But just this idea, oh, that will be, this, it, it, he knows it's not true. He knows it's not true. Ash, do you think this could backfire? This sort of liberalizing rules for the bankers while saying I'm going to toughen up rules for trade unionists? I think it could, but it, it won't necessarily. So let me start with the could. I think that measures like this, deregulating the banking sector, claiming that this is an example of the post-Brexit freedoms that people voted for in 2016, what this signals is that there is a quite big departure from the kind of vote-leave populism that characterised Boris Johnson's government. So we're not really talking about levelling up, although this bonfire of the regulations is being justified through the idea that it will generate more tax revenue for the levelling up agenda. Um, it's taking what's a quite you know, straightforwardly conservative neoliberal policy and trying to dress it up in some of the, you know, hand-me-downs of Brexit. But I don't think it's really going to work. You're in a context where you've got real terms wages falling across the board. You've got infrastructure falling apart, particularly outside of London. And you've got strike action, which is, you know, really an, on a scale which we haven't seen for quite some time in this country, uh, in no small part due to the raft of anti-trade union legislation, which was brought in by Margaret Thatcher, because people's living standards are in freefall and the government aren't doing anything about it. And for lots of people who switched their vote to the Conservatives in 2019, and for lots of people who indeed voted leave in 2016, they're the ones feeling the pinch. They're seeing their own living standards being hit uh, by this current economic crisis. And they're not going to like the idea that it's bankers in the city of London who are getting extra cash to gamble with and fewer responsibilities while they do so. That's 
at odds directly with the kind of populist rhetoric uh, which delivered the Conservatives their 80-seat majority. So I think that does create space in politics for a kind of populism which says, none of you voted for this. None of you thought that by voting Brexit, you would end up with, you know, more cash for city fat cats, lift of the cap on bankers' bonuses, and more exposure to financial risk for you as a retail banking customer. None of you voted for this. But there isn't a Labour Party or indeed a you know a kind of media conversation which is taking up that space. When I was listening to the Today program this morning, I was stunned by just how complacent and casual they were about this raft of deregulatory measures. Um, they interviewed, I think, a fund manager who was, of course, saying that he was delighted with this very sensible and prudent and measured package of reforms. Even when I was watching BBC News at six, it was a chorus of voices who were pro the package. And I think it was one lone voice who was against. And then when you look at Labour's response, they are, in fairness, saying that what this could represent is a deregulatory race to the bottom. But it's like they're trying to say it in double voice. So the statement that came from Tulip Sadiq was saying, well, you know, in the city, you know, they don't want a deregulatory race to the bottom. You know, the Tories have promised Big Bang 2.0 many times before. And what people want in the city isn't more broken promises. It's not another, you know, damp squib. And actually, no, the city does want more deregulation. That's directly within their financial interests. But it's not in everybody else's interest to be exposed to that level of risk. And so what Labour have done is that they've effectively hamstrung themselves by doing this whole thing of, well, we're the party of business. We don't want to spook the CBI or our newly returned corporate donors. They don't actually want to say, well, look, bankers might want this because it means they get to gamble more with your money, but we're not going to let them do that. We think that's wrong. We don't think that's the right direction for the country to go in at all. So there is a huge vacancy, I think, in the narrative for critical voice in the media about this kind of thing and also for a political opposition to it which isn't trying to play it both ways both you know pro-banker and anti-deregulation so I think that that is going to be good news for Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak because they're not facing the kind of pushback on this that they really ought to. Let's go to our next story. We talk a lot on this show about the nightmare that is renting and mass exploitation by landlords. But in researching a separate show I host, it's called Crash Course with Michael Walker. I've been talking to lots of people and discovering just how bad it is. It's worse than even I expected. So I want to show you now a part of an interview. This is a conversation with Anna Oppenheim, who was looking for a flat this summer. I've been renting in London for 10 years. I've lived in seven different properties and normally, look, everyone complains about London renting, right? It is expensive. The quality of the properties is often not very good. But in terms of availability, that wasn't the issue. Normally, if you apply for two or three places, you'll get one with a proper viewing. And you can negotiate maybe slightly around move-in days, things like that. Whereas now, it was trying to find a place to live was like a full-time job. Um, and that was not about like getting a cheap possible rent. That was just like literally to like have a place to sleep where we ended up sofa surfing we ended up like taking time of work for the surge it took us what something like three months to find a place to live 
I've heard some real horror stories, you know, people having to attend these sort of mass viewings. You've got 30 people competing for the attention of the landlord. You've got people paying just to view properties. That's the bit I find the most sort of like surprising. I mean, did you have to do that to pay to, to view a property? Yeah, yeah. We got asked that several times that in order to even apply for a viewing, you're asked to pay a deposit up front, a deposit which you don't get back if you see the property, you decide you don't like it. That could be 200, 300, 400 pounds. Once you got asked to pay a thousand pounds without even having seen the place. At the time, we decided not to do it. There was too much of a risk. But then we actually regretted that because, oh, what if you had to pay? Maybe you have a place to live and not having to spend like weeks of our lives still searching with no secure place to stay. We didn't really even apply for any, any property without offering above the listed price. We were told by estate agents it's the standard now, basically. So uh, sometimes, yeah, we would see a property that's already expensive, offer 200 more per month, um, and then get told that someone else offered 500 more so you won't get it. So this is completely wild. Like, I was blown away. People are paying, or people are being asked to pay, a thousand pounds, not as a deposit on a house that they've already looked at, decided to live in, to view a property. And then if they say, oh, actually, I don't want the property and the landlord says, but I do want to give it to you, they don't get it back, right? So how it normally works is you say, oh, all right, you, I give them 400 quid for this and then they end up giving the property to someone else because it's so competitive out there. But if they want to give the property to you and you don't want it, they keep your money for looking at a house. You know, I've, I, luckily, I haven't had to look for a house this year. I did have to take a 15% rent increase, but we decided to take it because we didn't want to enter this disastrous market out there. But people who have had to look for houses... This year, it's like, not only are you paying someone loads of money for not really doing anything, all they did was they were lucky enough to have enough capital to buy a house, right? Giving them a third or a half of your income every, every month. But you have to like beg on your knees for the right to live there and for the right to give them half your income every month. So you're paying them hundreds of pounds to view a property. Then you've got this listed price. Now, I normally, when I'm sort of renting, you look at the listed price and you say, oh, do you think we could offer them 50 pounds below? If you really like the place, obviously you don't because you want it. You don't want someone else to get it. If, you, if you're not that sure, you say, well, maybe if it was 100 quid left, we would take it. So you offer that, you try. Now you have to say, this is the listed price. I'm going to give you 200 pounds more. Then you offer to give them 200 pounds more. Someone else has given them 500 pounds more. Someone else has given them a year's rent in a bag full of cash. They're like, it's... It is outrageous. And whereas sort of people's mortgage rates rising can bring down a government, I think in, in many ways, it was the, the increase in interest rates and the effect that that would have on mortgage holders that meant that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng had to go, right? They brought down a government. When it comes to renters who've been living through this for, well, I mean, renters have always got a raw deal, but it's been particularly exceptionally bad this year. Barely a ripple. Ash, I want your thoughts on this. Have you, have you ever heard of people having to pay to view a property? No, not until this year. There has been a sharp increase in the number of horror stories that have been reaching my ears in the last 12 months. And I think that the, the reasons are multiple is that one, you've got some landlords selling up, they're being impacted by interest rates. And that's because many landlords basically hold interest only mortgages. So they're like, you know what, fuck this, I'm going to sell up. And also the second thing is that you've had a Wild West environment for so long that there is no accountability. There is no restraint on the actions of landlords. There is a sort of bottomless pit of profiteering. And the only thing that that affects is the 
you know, living standards and quality of life of their tenants. They don't really care about that. I think that, that one of the great lies of capitalism is that markets are rational. And because they're as a whole rational, they'll become self-regulating to, if not a whole extent, then at least a significant one. And I think that what you see with the rental market is that that's not the case. What you've had is that because you have a a two-tier system of housing, what you have is that if you've got enough capital to hand, or you at least did in the 1980s and 1990s, you were able to get on what I like to call the asset escalator, right? You jumped on it and you were able to see the value of that asset appreciate over years far and above any increase in your pay packet. So what is it that pays more? Is it work, right? Is it income from work or is it, you know, income from an asset from, from wealth? Well, it's, it's wealth. And if you're someone who, who didn't have that money to jump on the asset escalator, or maybe, you know, you're like me or you, and you just were simply born too late, then suddenly you're on this lower tier where you're paying every month the same amount that you would need to pay off a mortgage. Very often you're paying more than that, but because you didn't have that initial lump sum for a deposit or to buy outright, you're constantly digging yourself further into a hole and getting further away from being able to have, you know, secure housing in a way which doesn't just impoverish you. You're not just pouring your money into a bottomless pit. What landlords have realized is that there is no limit to how far you can push people. You know, the jobs are concentrated in major cities. The educational opportunities are concentrated in major cities. So you're going to have young people who need a place to live in and around those major cities. And they're just going to make themselves poorer. They will, you know, take on more debt. They'll borrow more money from their families if that's possible. They will just accept the fact that they won't ever be able to buy a house. And that's fine by the landlord class. So you don't have a, you know, rational self-regulating market. Actually, the rational thing to do as a landlord in terms of your own self-interest is just keep squeezing, just keep on squeezing. So I think that what the kind of crisis we're seeing now is a direct result of successive governments, including new Labour governments, looking at the private rental market and going, you know what, fill your boots, have fun, profit as much as you want. And not going, okay, well, actually, for it to be this profitable to leverage your ownership over an asset, over someone who doesn't own an asset, that's not a healthy way for an economy to run. So we're going to tax it to the point where it's not really profitable to be a landlord. We're, we're gonna we're gonna make it easier for young people to access cheap and secure forms of tenancy. We're we're gonna make sure that house prices don't spiral out of the reach of of income increases. Successive governments have failed to do that, and that's why you know you've been lumped with this horrible rent increase. That's why Anna's being gouged for hundreds of pounds, if not a thousand pounds, simply for a viewing. It's the result of government policy. And failing to build hundreds of thousands of council homes. We used to build like 100,000 council homes a year up until the 1980s. Then we stopped building any at all. Now house building is way lower than it used to be. House prices have rocketed. That's also because of changes to mortgage markets. 
But yeah, it's, it's, we're all completely screwed. We're all completely screwed, unless you got on the property ladder. And I have to say, maybe some of you got on the property ladder last year. You're not on a fixed rate mortgage. You paid a lot for a house. Your interest rates will be very difficult to pay right now. I also feel for you guys. But renters have been getting a raw deal for a very, very long time. And that was just part of my interview from a podcast called Crash Course with Michael Walker. My side project, obviously, Tisky Sour, my main baby. But do check that out if you're interested in rent. Let's go to our next story. The first three episodes of a new Netflix documentary series about Prince Harry and Princess Meghan. Is she still a princess? They have dropped anyway. And right-wingers are freaking out. This was Mike Graham on Talk TV. And we also know that no matter how much money you have, no matter what title you have, you can't buy class because you two have got absolutely none of it. So thank you. On behalf of Great Britain, the United Kingdom indeed of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, of which you used to be a part and which you are now trashing for money. Thank you, Harry, and thank you, Meghan, for proving just what worthless individuals you are and good riddance. And I will repeat my call that I made earlier this year. Not only should you both be stripped of your royal titles, but Harry, you should be stripped of your British citizenship because you clearly don't like this country, you clearly hate this country, and quite frankly, we don't really want you back. Prince Harry getting the Shamima Begum treatment there on talk radio. Mike Graham wasn't the only right-winger to get hot under the collar after watching the documentary. Piers Morgan in The Sun asked this, does Harry seem so unhappy because he knows he's been manipulated by a family wrecker into leaving everything he loved? Um, I'm sure that's a heartfelt question and he really cares about the answer. The front page of the mirror was this, stop this royal circus. And they're very furious that this is happening just two months after the Queen died. And never to be outdone, Douglas Murray in The Telegraph wrote, America's race-obsessed elites have declared war on British institutions. And a big part of that article is the Meghan and Harry documentary. So what has got all these right-wingers so furious? What about the Netflix documentary did they hate so much? Well, we're not going to show you clips from the documentary, unfortunately. Netflix paid the Sussexes £100 million for the footage. So we're predicting they're going to be pretty tight on copyright rules. Um, But we do have some quotes um, from the show there, all from Prince Harry here. So he said this in the show, This is about duty and service, and I feel as though, being part of this family, it is my duty to uncover this exploitation and bribery that happens within our media. That press pack of royal correspondence is essentially just an extended PR arm of the royal family. He also accused the royals of unconscious bias. In this family, sometimes you're part of the problem rather than part of the solution. And there is a huge level of unconscious bias. That thing with unconscious bias is it's actually no one's fault. But once it's been pointed out or identified within yourself, you then need to make it right. It's education, it's awareness, it's a constant work in progress for everybody, including me. As far as a lot of the family were concerned, everything she was being put through, they had been put through as well. So it was almost like a rite of passage. Some of the members of the family were like, my wife had to go through that. So why should your girlfriend be treated any differently? And then I said, the difference here is the race elements. That's what Prince Harry said in that situation. This is a comment that to me seemed particularly harsh. For so many people in the family, especially the men, there can be a temptation or an urge to marry someone who would fit the mold as opposed to someone who you were perhaps destined to be with, which is difficult to read as anything other than a comment about his brother. Ash, I only managed to get through 20 minutes of the documentary. It was a little bit saccharine for me. Sort of like there was a bit 
they they were talking too much about meeting on Instagram as well. But it's clearly caused a lot of interest, sparked a lot of interest. What did you make of it? What did you make of the documentary? What did you make of the backlash? The first thing is that it's impossible to have a conversation about Harry and Meghan in part because of the viciousness and the hysteria of that right-wing backlash. So you've got Mike Graham saying strip Prince Harry of his you know, British citizenship, like he's gone overseas to fight for ISIS in Raqqa. I mean, it's they've lost all sense of proportion. And there's a delicious irony, though not one that they're aware of, that you've got so many of these right-wing free speech campaigners absolutely losing their minds when you've got individuals exercising their right to free speech in a way which isn't even that threatening to the establishment. Do you know what I mean? This is the most liberal of liberal id poll it's you know really quite tame stuff by by our political standards and so because of that viciousness then it puts you in this defensive crouch where because harry and megan are being attacked because of you know their perceived disloyalty to the royal family the fact that they're lifting the lid on some of the realities of how the UK press operates and also because of the racial dynamic, you feel like, okay, well, you kind of have to be on their side because that's the side of anti-racism or that's the side of media critique or, you know, that's the side of of wanting to be honest about the royal family are really like. And it means that you you miss out on what some of these realities are. So the reality is, is that these are three hours of some of the most self-indulgent, self-aggrandizing documentary making I've ever seen in my life. These are two people who really have bought into a lot of their own myth. It is absolutely saturated with this kind of, you know, Instagram pseudo self-help slash anti-racist language in a way which I'm sure you know, has had some meaning for them on their particular journeys, but I don't think is necessarily always that revealing or insightful. There was an interesting moment where, you know, Harry talked about the fact that he had worn a Nazi costume at a costume party. And I think the theme of that party, if I recall correctly, was a colonizer's costume party. And he talked about, you know, learning and growing from it, uh, you know, meeting with the chief rabbi in London, meeting with a Holocaust survivor. and. The thing that he maybe didn't mention is that that was a really racist party. Even if you didn't go dressed as a Nazi, it, that would have been a racist theme. That also he, when he was in the army, and the army, of course, was spoken of in, in absolutely glowing terms. You know, he referred to, you know, a, a fellow, you know, a fellow soldier as a packy and a, and a, and a raghead. And so the reason why he doesn't talk about those things is because then it would actually mean that he had to be critical of institutions that he still felt some kind of affinity for, i.e. the army, and thinking about the way in which Islamophobia and racism, which is targeted at South Asians and Muslims, plays out in the army is not something that he's willing to do. So, so in terms of an intervention on race politics, this is an extremely limited documentary series. But there were a couple of things that I thought were interesting, if not wholly revealing. One is that you had an assemblage of talking heads, which included Kayan Day Andrews, who I believe has been on Tuskisawa a couple of times. You had Afwa Hirsch, who is the author of British. And you also had David Olasoga, who is a researcher who has done some really incredible work on the reparations who are paid to slave owners by the British state after the abolition of slavery. 
Now, some of the most spicy critiques of uh, the royal family's role in colonialism come from these talking heads. And one of the things that's really striking is that it's not just about the royal family's history of colonialism, but there's also critique of the Commonwealth as it exists today. So Afwa Hirsch talks about the Commonwealth as a kind of empire 2.0. And another talking head mentions that, well, yes, we've got a commonwealth where we're supposed to be this family of nations headed up by first the queen and now, of course, King Charles. But when you look at the conditions that black people in those commonwealth countries have to live under, it's still very much a one-way relationship. Britain gets to keep its status, but you haven't had a huge improvement of living standards for black people in those countries. So that is going a lot further than the things which have already been said about race in the royal family by Harry and Meghan themselves in terms of a senior member of the royal family expressed concerns about how dark Archie's skin was or the fact that Princess Michael of Kent, whose father was an SS officer, by the way, turned up to a Christmas lunch where she'd be meeting Meghan for the first time wearing an Orinoco brooch, a Blackamore brooch. I mean, like, do you know how racist you have to be to own racist jewellery? Like, crazy. Um, so I think that the fact that those critiques are in there is interesting. But I, I, I'm really worried about the poster children for anti-blackness in British society being Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. These are two incredibly wealthy, privileged individuals. And you look at the deaths that we've had in police custody or following police contact, the fact that, you know, Chris Kabar's family are still waiting for justice. Chris Kabar, who was killed in South London by police, he was shot dead. And there's been all sorts of misinformation put out about the circumstances of that death. The police initially claimed that there was a car chase. Now they are not. They're saying that there was no car chase. At the death of uh, Sheku Bayo in Scotland, who was uh, restrained by police and who died. You have all sorts of, you know, discrepancies and, and, and differences in outcomes, whether that's in the employment market or whether that's, you know, the way black women are treated in terms of their access to, to maternity health care. And it really does concern me that Meghan and Harry, as, as, as difficult as I'm sure their experiences have been for them, aren't representative of the fact that for most people, racism and classism are really intimately bound up you know, racism doesn't just manifest in prejudicial behavior or unkind comments or, you know, stereotyping or or indeed slurs and, and violent attacks that also manifest in the whole litany of indignities and suffering that comes with poverty and, and forms of poverty you're more likely to experience on the basis of your race. So I worry about the amount of space this takes up in the public conversation and enjoy it for the tittle-tattle that it is, look at it for insight in terms of what's going on when it comes to the royal family drama. Just don't think of it as the new frontier in anti-racist struggle. Amen. Very persuasive as always there, Ash. I'm not even going to try and come back because I know you covered all the bases um, and I'm going to have nothing interesting to say. So we're going to go straight on to our final story. This week, the government made the shocking decision to approve a new coal mine in Cumbria, and it was left to Employment Minister Guy Opperman 
to defend the move on question time. There are various things you should read in the 419-page report uh, that was issued uh, yesterday by the planning inspector. But the planning (coughs) inspector made very, very clear a couple of key points. This will have a neutral effect on climate change. It's a paragraph 22.9, so I'd suggest it's not you... What cli- it's not what your own it's climate committee... Can I, can I just ask you about that? It is neutral on climate change. Read the independent planning inspector. Your own independent climate change committee doesn't say that. Because they haven't actually read the report. Well, no, what's they they read that? Just clarify one thing for us, because I, I was just following this obviously reasonably closely. I thought it might come up today. And it, it may be that I've misunderstood this. But as I understand it, they came to that conclusion on the basis of the carbon emissions you'd get from digging the coal out of the ground. What it doesn't include is the carbon emissions from burning that coal. Is that right? So you're asking something about a 419-page report. Bluntly. Well, it's just because you quoted it. No, no, no. No, so I have tried to read it all on my way here tonight. It will be carbon neutral. Just read the report. They haven't read the report. Didn't, didn't the report just take into account the emissions of digging up the coal, not burning it? I don't know. I haven't read the report. How could you have expected me to have read the report? Um, actually, were you convinced by Guy Offerman there? I was quite impressed that that sort of like complete flip took place under 60 seconds. You know, it was, it was a real about turn. I mean, there's there's something really um, fascinating about the psychology of government ministers who have to go in the broadcast round. Um, last time I was on Politics Live, I was speaking to a conservative MP who had been a minister. And one of the things that he said is that going into it is that you know it's going to be undignified. You know you're going to get pressed on stuff you don't know. You know you're going to have to go out and advance lines on the government's behalf, which are utterly indefensible. So You've already made the decision to leave your dignity at the door and just go, you know what, I've just got to get through this hour, however. Now, that's a horrendous way to look at your job, which is about public service. And part of public service, I think, is about delivering quality information to the public. But if you if you ignore that, you just go like, I'm here for the barest political calculation based on my own career and my party's, you know, poll ratings, then you will allow whatever ridiculous nonsense to come out of your mouth. So that's how you can have someone like, you know, Guy Hopperman saying, just read the report. But I haven't. I tried on the way here. It's 419 pages. That's really long. That's about the same length as Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. You know, it's it's totally embarrassing but that's part of the job of a government minister as it's been defined in contemporary politics just love the because i mean i don't blame the guy for not having read the 419 page report i probably wouldn't have read it either well i mean obviously i haven't read it but he says to the, the chair of the independent commission on climate change he says well if they think that they clearly haven't read the report, <laughs> to the report i don't know i haven't read the report but it's funny shameless i wonder i kind of just wonder if sort of like Bouncing back on what you were saying there, Ash, is if sort of like media training for like government ministers, it's kind of like, you know, like SAS officers where they sort of pretend to torture them and they've got to practice like not giving out information. I assume they do this. Maybe they don't, but this is in my imagination. This is what you do in the SAS. You sort of, they sort of pretend to torture you and you're sort of like, I won't tell you the secrets. I won't tell you the secrets. I imagine with the, with the sort of, with the government is you have the PR guy, you know, the, Alistair Campbell type figure, but for the Conservatives. And then you've got this cabinet minister and you're just like pulling down their trousers. You're like rubbing a frankfurter in their face. And you're like, you're just doing whatever you can to make them as humiliated as possible. And you say, and what's what's the correct policy? The government policy is the correct policy. The government policy is the correct policy. Just stop putting a frankfurter in my face. 
<laughs> do you think that's what media training is like for these people but you know what now you put it like that i think that starts a lot earlier when you think about the kind of hazing that gets done at elite boarding schools mm, like Easton exactly. and Winchester and Gordiston. When you think about the initiation ceremonies of the Piers Gaveston Society and the Bullingdon Club, all of which have an element of, you know, psychosexual trauma, maybe that's what, what it's all about. It's like you are going to be, you know, at the pinnacle of British society. You are going to be at the heart of power. You are going to have to do some ugly shit to your fellow man and endure the slings and arrows of public opprobrium. Get ready for it. Put your dick in a dead pig's mouth. Go on. <laughs> there is no better practice for being at the top of a Tory government and putting your penis in a dead pig's mouth, we've learnt. Although it doesn't necessarily, you, you know, you might not predict the outcome of a referendum, but you can, you know, be as shameless as you ever need to be. Let's wrap up there. It's been an enjoyable Friday evening, Ash. Thank you for spending it with me. Well, you've got to put up with me in real life now. I'm about to see you at a party. Yeah, we do have the Navarra Media Christmas party. The Navarra Media sold out Christmas party. If you are joining us there, see you soon. If not, we will see you on Monday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.